Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. I think it's so neat that you're able to join us through this medium, and it means so much to me personally to hear that this has been used to encourage so many of you. It has always been the posture of Genesis to tangibly extend the love of Jesus in various ways, both locally and across the world. We support programs that assist families in need, contribute to ongoing works and building projects in Mexico. We've built a latrine and cafeteria for St. Andre's School in Haiti, as well as are advancing a food program there that we hope will help feed the children for years to come. The money collected for all these endeavors could have paid for a facility of our own many times over, but instead, we've intentionally chosen to be a mobile community since we began. We now have before us an opportunity to invest in a building of our own. We're not doing this, however, without considering the works we're committed to or even the works we feel compelled to keep doing in the future. But we're asking, if you've benefited from this podcast or from anything that Genesis has done, would you consider partnering with us by donating to this work directly at www.thegenesisstory.com and click on the Building Fund tab. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Together, let's prepare for an amazing tomorrow. Thanks, and God bless. If you have your Bible, you can open it to Matthew chapter 12. I want to thank Randy for sharing last week. He did an amazing job. Uh, so appreciative for him and his vulnerability with the things that he shared. How important it is to know that God is there, that anchor for us through all the things that we go through in life. And so again, thank you, Randy. Appreciate you so much. And this morning, I kind of want to revisit Jonah, but just a little bit. We're going to kind of be looking at it from a different angle, and it wasn't, it's not going to be focused just on Jonah. And this morning, we are going to be speaking about chocolate chip cookies, playing chess, Paul McCartney, and childbirth, all right? But let's start with reading Rome, or Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Oh, there it is. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Years ago, I had a get-together at my house. Some friends who had gone to Europe with me 
had come back and we wanted to kind of get together again and just kind of stay in contact with one another. And so my daughter and one of her friends were going to bake some chocolate chip cookies for the gathering. And so they started in the kitchen, you know, the mixer's going and the smell is in the air, you know, when cookies are baking and it was chocolate chip cookies and they just looked absolutely amazing. And and as they were cooking, she got a whole plate full of these cookies and she started handing them out to the people who were there. And one of the friends, Richard Mulder, who went with us on the trip, he was a pro skater at the time. He, he took a bite of one of the cookies and he just kind of stopped and made a face. And he said, oh, these are interesting. You know, when someone says they're interesting and they don't say they're good, that there's a problem. What had happened is the, my friend, my daughter's friend had put instead of a third of a teaspoon of salt, a third of a cup of salt into the cookies. So they didn't taste sweet. They tasted very, very salty. And so even though they looked like amazing chocolate chip cookies, they didn't taste like amazing chocolate chip cookies. And you know, one of the things that happens is there is this ability to put on the appearance that everything is good. You have a religious appearance, but something isn't right. It just doesn't taste right. And that's really what we have going on here. We have the overly religious people looking good to everybody, but something isn't right. You see, a more strict interpretation is not necessarily a better interpretation. And when the Pharisees said it's not lawful for them to be picking the the grain of wheat on the Sabbath, well, there's nothing in the law that says you can't do that. But what the law does is say you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And so they interpret it because they want to make sure they don't violate the law of God. They said even picking grains of wheat is the same thing as working. And so any reason to, to call someone in error, and, and there are still people like that today, you can find the internet full of them, right? These churches are bad. Why? We'll tell you why. Because they pick grains of wheat on the Sabbath. I mean, they don't say that, but they might as well. They're trying to find any little thing that they disagree with so that they can discredit someone. And so Jesus gives two examples, and they're really perfect examples. Because here they're challenging his disciples, and he says, don't you remember when David was on the run from Saul, and they were hungry? They went into the temple, and they got the bread that's only for the priest, that's consecrated, it's set apart for them. They took it, and they ate it. What about that? Or the priests, every Sabbath they work by offering the sacrifices and doing the work in the temple. They are profaning the Sabbath, but it's on the Sabbath. So Jesus not only gave an example about David, but he even pushed it more. What about the priests? They are always working on the Sabbath, but it's okay. You see, the temple 
in Jesus's day was really probably the central symbol to Judaism. It was the heart of their beliefs or at the heart of their beliefs. It was where their worship was to take place. It was where the presence of God in their minds were was so that they could enter and be close to God. And so when Jesus mentions David and he says something greater than the temple is here, he is leading them to a deeper understanding. He's wanting them to look more closely at what really God means because they are looking good, all chocolate chip looking, but it's not right. What's happening inside of them is not good. The presence of something greater changes the rules. It did with David. They were hungry. It was necessary for their survival that changed the rules because the rules were given to help man, not to bring harm to man. And that's why Jesus at another place could say that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's his whole point is this isn't here to bring harm. It's actually supposed to bring good. And so when something greater, a circumstances comes that's more important, then the rules change to go with what's more important. David and his men needed food to survive. The priests need to work to help others to worship. Special circumstances change the rules. That's what Jesus is pushing into. And I know for some of us, it's like, well, no, we can't. We've got to have our rules. We have to have them steadfast. And so we'll read a a passage of scripture where Rahab, the prostitute, lies because she's protecting the spies who are hiding. And then she's commended. She's commended for lying? She's even in the genealogy of Matthew. How could a prostitute who lies be commended? See, because something important was happening. And so the rules changed to accommodate the more important thing that was taking place. Human need always trumps over the rules or the legal restrictions. The Sabbath was made for man. And when this religious restrictions are put on that become a burden, then they are no longer chocolate chip cookies. They no longer taste right. Something's wrong. The ingredients, the interior of them is out of whack. And that's exactly what we see taking place here. What they are doing is making laws that now restrict what people are able to do. I'm not a big chess player, but I used to enjoy playing until I always lost, then I just quit because, you know, it's no fun to always lose. But when I was younger and playing people, you know, it was always great because it's a, a game of strategy. But the whole point of the game is to make it so your opponent can no longer move. And when he can no longer move, then it is called what? Checkmate, Checkmate, right? The game's over. 
You're done. You're out of moves, buddy. There's nothing else you can do. And so what has happened is the Pharisees has come and they tried to make this law where you are unable to move outside of these boundaries, but life is not that cut and clear. At least my life hasn't been. How's about yours? Is your life nice, cut, clean? No, no. Some of you laugh. I appreciate that. Uh, that's funny. Life is easy. Yeah. No, it's not. There are so many circumstances that happened that I could not have foreseen, I could not have planned for, and I don't even know how do I walk through this except by, by faith. And if I don't have mercy helping me through this, I don't know where I'll end up. And so as the Pharisees are trying to stop these things from moving forward, Jesus is trying to say, no, there's something more important than just the moves you're making. There is the motive behind the moves. There is the heart of the matter. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, how many times he say, you have heard it said you are not to commit murder, but whoever hates his brother commits murder in his heart. You've heard it said not to commit adultery, but whoever lusts in his heart has committed adultery. What is he, he doing? He's trying to say there's a motive that produces these things in our lives. What God cares about is the motives that start the actions. And restricting things doesn't stop the motives. And so what God is wanting to do is get to the motives. You know, as the church had started and began to grow. You had these Jewish believers who who had followed the law. And all of a sudden we have Jesus saying, the law is now fulfilled through me. And then you have Gentiles coming into the faith who have no idea what the law is. They don't know the Old Testament scriptures. They don't know about the sacrifice. They don't know about circumcision. They don't know about Sabbath. None of those things are a part of their life. And they come to faith and they had to decide, what do we do with these Gentiles? What rules do we give them to help them understand? What are the boundaries that we need to set? And you have to think, okay, if we're going to set this chessboard up, how are we going to restrict them? And in Acts chapter 15, verses 28 through 29, we have the council where Paul and Barnabas comes to Jerusalem to talk about all these Gentiles who are coming in. And the whole chapter kind of is a discourse on what has happened. Peter talks about his encounter with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and how he saw that the Spirit fell on him just like it did on the Jews and how God gave him a vision told him to kill and eat food that was unclean. Again, the rules now have changed because something more important is happening here. And they decide this is what we are going to do regarding the Gentiles. Verse 28, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden. That really means we're not going to have you circumcised which I'm sure all the men appreciated. Verse 29, that you abstain from what was been sacrificed to idols and from blood 
and from what has been strangled and from sexual immortality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. That's it. That's all the rules. Now, what's interesting is even these rules, how many of you have refrained from things that have been strangled? Do you know? I don't know. How do I know? Has it been strangled? You see, again, this was something applicable at this time because the Gentile believers are being requested to make sure that they stay clear of the main areas of pagan worship. That's what these things are involved. Oh, and sexual immortality. 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 Got to get those right. (laughs) Making sure that they aren't living loose lives, make sure that they're not involved with pagan worship. That's all the rules we're going to give you. We're not asking you to keep the Sabbath. We're not asking you to keep any of our feasts. We're not asking you to deal with any sacrifices because the sacrifices are done. There is no need for any more sacrifices. They've been fulfilled through Christ. We're not asking you to be circumcised. Everything that was a part of our lives has just stopped and we're not putting any of that burden on you. It's interesting. You don't even see in Paul's letters to the Gentiles where he commands them to read the Old Testament scriptures. He's pushing forward in the change that God has done through the person of Christ. And so it's a whole new change. But these things, to us, they might seem silly. Picking grain on wheat, meat strangled. Those things are silly. We, we don't have to worry about those. But we make our own things up. We make our own rules up. I remember being a part of a church. It was really a pretty large church. And the pastor from the pulpit would speak out to the congregation and he would tell everyone that he does not listen to secular music because he wants to keep his mind and his life devoted to God. That he is so wanting to live a pure life before God, he won't even listen to secular music. He even told his daughter that she could not rent a limousine on her prom because he didn't want her to have an appearance that would be construed as, well, you're living this kind of lifestyle. He didn't want her to have that, so no limousine on your prom, and I won't listen to secular music. Here's the thing. A friend of mine worked at the Greek theater, and he worked in the box office for the Nederlander company and he would get great tickets to great shows and he got tickets to see paul mccartney at the forum when they were doing concerts at the forum going to the forum club and great stage seating it was just amazing and this is when paul mccartney came out and started doing the old Beatles songs again right so i was like oh man i've got to hear this Well, this pastor was a big Beatles fan, and guess who ended up coming to the concert? Not only that, my friend worked it out because he knew someone who owned a limousine company that a limousine came and picked us up, took us to the forum club to go see Paul McCartney. 
And this is the kicker, right? That, this is the best part. When we got out of the limousine right there in front of the forum club, when this pastor walked out, there was someone from his church there with a camera. Isn't that just beautiful? And he saw that and he goes, oh. And he went and goes, oh, I, I didn't have any of this. Well, you know, oh, yeah, okay, now you're going to backpedal. You see, I don't listen to secular music unless it's something I really want to hear. As if that is going to really deal with your heart. Does that make you any better of a person if you don't listen to secular music? I heard another pastor's conference. It was the same pastor got up in front of all these pastors and he talked about how one of his friends had his worship team. It's always those worship leaders, I know. Had his worship team that they went to a conference and they connected with some other people and then they went out and had a drink afterwards. And now these, all these people on his team have drinking problems. And I'm thinking... They had problems before they went to this conference. If they go to a conference and now they have a drinking problem, then something was already wrong. You see, but what we want to do is put those restrictions. We want to make it a chessboard. We want to stop your ability to move, stop your ability to sin. But it doesn't deal with what's going on. It doesn't deal with the heart. And Matthew 15, verse 8 said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They're saying, this is what the heart of God is, and really, it's the commandments of men. And that's taken from Isaiah 29. You see, Jesus is pointing this out. He's saying, you guys have made commandments that aren't really the heart of God. You're missing the point. You're worried about them picking grain, but you don't see that it's never really been the problem with God. What's been the problem is the condition of the heart, not just these actions. And if we can restrict all these actions, then we can stop the problem. Well, then what is the doctrine of God? What is the doctrine of God that we need to pay attention to? You know, Jesus says here, something greater. As he talks to them and he says, you know, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what that means, verse 7, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless, which was his disciples. And so the doctrine of God would actually be this mercy. Something greater, I believe, is pointing to Jesus, but I also believe it's pointing to who Jesus is. It's referring to him, but also referring to the mercy that he just mentioned in verse 7. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's the doctrine of God. So where does mercy show up? Well, it shows up everywhere. It shows up whenever there's a need. It shows up when you're struggling with an addiction. It shows up when you find out you have cancer. It shows up when your son takes his life. It shows up in the mess of life. And what God desires is mercy, not sacrifice. 
And that's where Jesus is pushing this to. If you had known what this means, instead of condemning the guiltless. See, the idea of finding approval in God's eye by, the religious, by religious obligation and not by a loving response is misguided at best. And that's exactly what was taking place. My obligation will fulfill my requirements with God instead of me wanting the mercy of God in my life and that for others. And so jump down to chapter 12, verse 38. We're going to revisit Jonah. But again, just briefly, Matthew 12, verses 38 to 42, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, it talks about this generation, and when it's talking about this generation, it's not talking about a, a period of time, a span of time. What the generation is talking about is a population group that shares a common culture, right? We're familiar with different generations. There was the baby boom generation, right? Tom Brokaw said it was the greatest generation, right? This generation has strong work ethics. They were self-assured. They were competitive, right? Yes, that's the baby boom generation. Well, it's also the generation that brought an excessive national debt. It's also the generation that environmentally and economically didn't think about a future. It's also the most obese generation that we've had. So there's a flip coin, right? So if you're in the baby boom generation, sorry if I deflated your bubble. Just want to let you know there's two sides. There always is. But that's what he's talking about, this generation, this population that thinks this way. And as he starts telling them that Jonah and the queen of the south are going to bring judgment, they're going to condemn them. I don't think it's verbally that they're going to condemn them. It's just how they responded is going to be a sign of condemnation because you that think this way did not respond. You who are so locked up into your legalism did not make room for the mercy of God. These people who responded to the words of God, they're going to bring judgment. And it's so interesting because the Jonah and the queen of the south, which is the queen of Sheba, 1 Kings chapter 10, Jonah and the queen stood on opposite sides of Jesus' example. Okay? Jonah was an insider with Solomon. The queen was an outsider with Nineveh. Jonah was sent from Israel to proclaim the truth to foreigners. The queen was a foreigner who journeyed to Israel in search for the truth. 
And both of them, in both these sides, in both these situations, they responded. And these people with this generational mindset are not responding. And before we stop and think, well, that's those Pharisees, we have to understand that when Jesus warned us about the Pharisees, he wasn't warning us about a people who lived at that time. He was warning us about a mindset that lives today. See, I know people who are 20 years old who have an 80-year-old mindset. They're still holding on to traditions that have long gone because that's the way it was, and we're holding on to those things. And and Jesus is trying to push and get them to see that things have changed because the mercy of God has been extended even to these Gentile people, even to these disciples, just because they're picking the wheat and the grain. You know, one of the great things about being able to see your children born is that there is no preparing yourself for that. There's no preparing yourself for being a parent. I don't care how many classes you go to, you will not be prepared. When you have a kid, you will say, no one told me it was this hard. Okay. Even if you read a book that said it's going to be this hard, you will say no one prepared me that it was going to be this hard. But I can remember seeing the ultrasound with all of our children. I'll never forget when we found out we were having twins. And they were doing that ultrasound. They put the jelly on her belly, right? And then they're moving the magic wand over there. And they're putting this back and forth. And the lady goes, oh, there's one. I go, one? Yeah. Oh, good. There's one. And she goes, oh, 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 there's another. I'm like, another? And, you know. And we were so stupid, we were excited, you know, and we're, we're sitting there, and there's another one, and she goes, let's see if there's any more, and I'm like, oh, God, no, don't see if there's any more. But it was exciting, you could see, you know, the little alien face-looking thing on the screen, and then you, as they start growing, you start seeing the movement, and you can see her belly doing that whole alien trippy thing, you know, and it's all taking place. But when I was there and the child actually came out, it was unbelievable. Every time, it blew me away. Nothing could prepare you for how incredible it is, how miraculous it is. It is something that captures my breath still to this day. In John chapter 7, verse 46 Some of the temple guards were sent to go and bring Jesus back. They were sent to go and to arrest him. And they responded and said, no one ever spoke like this man. You see, what Jesus was saying was different than anything that they heard. Now, I don't think it was just because Jesus was the Son of God and he had some kind of aura about him that his voice had natural reverb, you know, that would echo. I think what he was saying was so connected to God that they were overwhelmed. And you see, 
God desired mercy, not sacrifice. Here their whole lives they've been told, we need to sacrifice to please God. We need to sacrifice to please God. And here's Jesus saying that God wants to show mercy. And they were like, wow, no one's ever spoken like this man. And it overwhelmed them. Again, he says, something greater then Solomon is here. Something greater. It's interesting that he says something and not someone. I believe he's pointing to himself. But again, I don't think it is just who he is. I think it's all that he is. See, the God who shows mercy over the law showed mercy to Nineveh and revealed himself to the queen This is his way. The God who desires mercy over sacrifice, this is his truth. The early Christians continued to experience this something greater. It was part of their walk, part of their daily life. That is why many preferred to die than to give up what they had found in Christ. Remember, Becoming a Christian, especially for the Jewish people, took you out of the protection of the Jewish religion. The Roman Empire would allow you to stay in your Judaism, but these Christians, they were too small and fragmented that they were concerned about them, so they would put them to death. And they would rather die as a Christian than be a part or associated with another belief. Why? Because something greater had happened to their lives. Something more had taken place. That's why they were so devoted to him. What inspires our faith? What helps us to hold on to God? It's something greater. See, this is his life. This is the way, this is the truth, this is the life. And it's all seen in Jesus. I want us this week to think about these two words, something greater. So that when you're dealing with anxiety or an overwhelming situation, I want you to think something greater than this is what I believe in, is who I believe in. When you're dealing with temptation or or personal failures, I want you to remember something greater is now being offered to us. When you're dealing with death or life or angels or principalities or things present or things to come, height or depth, any other created thing, when we face, come face to face with these things, let's remind ourselves that what we have is something greater. We have something that is alive, something that is merciful and powerful. And this is what we are a part of. If you have believed in something that is less, if you are feeling burdened because of the weight of Christianity, I I just can't do these things, then you have to understand that you need to believe in something greater. 
Maybe what you're believing in is a little too small. Maybe it's a, a chessboard. And Jesus is wanting to throw the pieces off the board and say, no, life is something more and I am something greater. So remind yourself this week, whatever you're going through and wherever you're at, that something greater is offered to us. Let's pray. Father, it seems that so many times the church keeps wanting to build the walls that you have broken down. We we find security in those walls. We we find security on that chessboard. We, We find security in limitations, but life always pushes beyond. And what you are offering to us is something greater. That your mercy is greater. And Lord, you give us this not so that we can do and give ourselves to anything we want. You do this to win our hearts. As you tell us in Scripture, it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. It is this mercy that those chief guard heard that We've never heard anyone speak like this. Lord, may we hear your words throughout this week that what you have for us is something greater. If we are settling for a life that is less, may we not give up what is greater. May we not give you up for something less. I pray that these words would encourage everyone here, that we would be set free in your mercy. We are free to love you. We are free to worship you. We are free to live our lives fully because something greater has taken place and you have changed everything. Lord, may you continue to bring that change in our lives, we ask. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together. May you take the pieces of the chessboard that are holding you and throw them aside. May you understand the mercy of God has set you free, that there is something greater waiting for you. And may you not let anything or anyone hinder you from God. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. Happy Memorial Day. Enjoy each other's company. God bless you guys. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.